Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. Today, Brad Murray of VSCA joins me. Brad hails back to the Google Plus days. We discuss their process for creating the love letter to Traveler using the Fate engine. On the table is VSCA's approach to design and a number of games that VSCA has written. In my show notes is a link to my Patreon. A total of 10 people giving $1 a month tops off my fuel cells, and that will mean I will no longer have to skim the surface of a local gas giant. We all know how dangerous that can be. We are approaching the Slipknot, sisters and brothers. It is time to get rambling. Hello, Brad. Hi, Jeffrey. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. You know, it's... Uh, you know, as I mentioned before, we were talking going back to the, the G Plus days, um, the Google Plus. Uh, uh, you're probably one of the more active people. I, well, I think you definitely were very active in, during those times in, in development. And uh, I absolutely enjoyed following both the uh, developments you're doing for RPGs, but also your art. Oh, wow. Thank you. So there was a, there was a, uh, you were doing these biomechanical, you did a dragonfly, where it's like a dragonfly machine. Me- yeah. combination like if you, if you were to take and and mechanically put together i believe like a dragonfly make into a flying vehicle i guess is the best way to describe it yeah that's what i did and at the same time i did a uh a wasp uh that was all mechanical and sort of dressed as uh in world war ii pattern and iconography like a like a, an american jeep or something like that and that I recently just got tattooed on my back. <laughs> All right. <Yeah. laughs> well, I'll show cool. it to you, but, but yeah, it is cool. <laughs> um, but one of the things that I think at the time that was you were, you, I think you were enjoying the new hotness was the game uh, Diaspora. Uh, yeah. It's not that, I think Diaspora came out before we started interacting on Google Plus. That came out in 2009, but it had a long long period where it was quite popular yeah we got a lot of a lot of talk mileage out of that and, and moved a lot of copies so you you took uh two great tastes you, you took uh traveler and at the time it was it was fate not fate core yeah and you decided to put two great tastes together so uh, so what was your and what was the drive to say you know what it's uh we've got traveler i want to do something different with it but what, what was the whole thing behind that well we'd all been this is all gang of people that have been playing since they were teenagers um but we've been gaming so in just traditional sort of gaming D and traveler maybe some uh metamorphosis alpha or something like that all the all the titles that were out in 77 78 79 that's all we played and then in about 2007 i guess um I started reading some blogs from people who were doing some more interesting game design work. The Forge was coming out. Right. And um, sort of parallel to that, Spirit of the Century came out, and there were a bunch of stuff. And I think all of that was percolating on RPG Net at the time. I'm pretty sure that's where I started to see all these new titles. So we grabbed a copy of Burning Wheel, a copy of Spirit of the Century, and some other toys, and I started tinkering with those. And once we got going with Spirit of the Century, then the light bulb really clicked on. We knew we wanted to play that system. It was delivering all of the hits that we wanted 
as adults now, you know, now we're in our forties and, and not kids and weren't looking for set piece battles and things like that. So it was hitting all the right notes. Um, but we really just wanted to play Traveler. So we, we wrote this draft that was called Spirit of the Far Future, which was really just Traveler, pretty much hand copied the whole book and then tinkered with to fit in with the fate system. So we played that for a long time before we decided this should be a thing. And in order for it to be a thing, it was going to have to not be so obviously Traveler and not be so obviously Spirit of the Century. Unfortunately, Spirit of the Century came with the uh, the open gaming license. Right. So you were kind of granted permission as a designer. People often talk about the OGL from a from a player's perspective, but it's really about permissions that are being granted to designers, not players. You're being granted the permission to use this entire framework within uh, generally clearly defined constraints to make your own game that would be similar, compatible. Uh, and use some of the same language. So because we had the OGL going for us, we only really wanted to play Traveler, and we dug the system, this mismatch, mishmash of Diaspora came into being. And there were years of playtesting that were a hoot, some of the best gaming in my life. Yeah, and I think what's interesting is, is you know, in in general, it, fate seems to be more of the pulp action-y, you know, and especially Spirit of the Century, you know, the Hmm. you know the, the crazy i mean it really intended to just be wild fun crazy ride the indiana jones or yeah you know johnny quest or whatever you know those types of things but you know traveler is pretty straight-faced in its approach it and you you kind of what well, i kind of but you did you you were able to make i guess a more uh, serious earnest game maybe earnest isn't quite the right word but out of using the the uh, fate system yeah, well, fate hadn't really been well elaborated at the time. Like, we didn't have a fate rule set to work with. We just had Spirit of the Century. Right. So the first thing that we were doing after playing Spirit of the Century was we were deconstructing it. You know, what, what is it that we like about this? And what is it that we're on the fence about? We were kind of on the fence about the genre. That wasn't kicking it for us. But the system was. So that, that was the first thing we did was really disconnect the genre from the system. And then it was just natural to make the system do the things that we wanted it to do. You know, it was mostly just a way of a, offering a different narrative for what a fate point is and what characters are capable of and that, that sort of thing. Toning down the, the, the tone from that sort of pulp hero to the much grittier uh, kind of traveler milieu wasn't even something we really thought about. It was just obviously a capability of the system to us at the time. Uh, if I was to look at it now, it would not look obvious to me. Well, I think also the, at the time, fate, you know, it, it preexisted fate core preceded. So and it was a more, I would say a more granular, well, I mean, granular is not work, but it was a much more complex system. Like fate core, they really, uh, was it Leonard Basalra? Uh, he, he, whittled it down so he whittled it down to like you know bare essence and and then yeah. everything goes from there but at that time i mean if you look at like uh the um the uh dresden files you know those are it's still a fairly complex game and it's not necessarily yeah. the same so i think he had more but it seemed like when you did diaspora you you, you didn't 
you you also like pared it down as well. It does not have the complexity of of like Dresden files, let's say. Yeah, well, I, I hadn't read the Dresden files. I mean, I'd never read the novels, never seen any of the media, so I wasn't interested in it. So I never actually looked at what they did with the Dresden file. But uh, my table was a bunch of professionals and mostly technical professionals, except for Toff, who's a classics prof. Well, all of us pretty analytical thinkers. And the first thing that we did was approach it almost like an engineering problem, let's break it down into modular components and generalize and generalize and generalize. Like that's why the stunt system is sort of a list of the general ways that stunts work. And then some examples is how to specify them with, with some narrative punch. But we spent a lot of energy doing that, like really figuring out what the underlying skeleton of fate was uh without having any contact with spirit of the century just drill it right down yeah just deconstruct the whole thing yeah and i think you also not only did you just have like the characters um and and also uh but the vehicles that's i have never so i've never played diaspora mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately but but i think the stuff you were doing with the ships doing like electronic countermeasures and, and ships like you know, rather than just the simple, like, in a sense, you made it, I think, a little bit more, um, I think because of the system, the way you created it, it made more sense than the standard traveler did, as far as the systems were smaller, the ships seemed more, I don't want to say realistic, but the ships were more realistic. It seems like you're kind of going for, you're able to take it and create a, a very, an opportunity to not only just do like normal character type stuff, but even ship to ship combat yeah well we wanted to there were a couple of different pressures going on there one of them was that i just had a real thing for the engineering and i wanted the ships to be as real as you could reasonably make them and still have a story about jumping between stars so i mean even the interstellar travel is is more plausible than a lot of interstellar travel because of this uh this fact that the multiple systems of the cluster don't know where they actually are in the universe relative to each other. So the space between them being jumped by this, by this faster than light technology, the slip knots, um, doesn't necessarily create the time paradoxes that it would otherwise, because there is no sublight path between the systems. So we're finding all kinds of little things like that to make it as plausibly realistic as possible. The other thing was we wanted, we recognized that we wanted sort of an old school game that broke down into subsystems. You know, your, your character generation subsystem, your guys fighting subsystem, your ships fighting subsystem, vehicles, like a platoon scale stuff fighting. And when we started play testing it, we started developing those subsystems as standalone games. So that you can make ships and, and spend an evening fighting ships against each other, and that would be fun. And similar with the platoon scale stuff and, and similar with individual scale. So it's really those subsystems just kind of bolted together with some, some colorful text in the end. That's, that, that's why they all play well, because they all had a, an almost equal amount of play test time as independent games. Yeah, if I haven't heard you mentioned that, didn't, uh, uh, didn't Evil Hat borrow some of the uh, <laughs> ideas behind the platoon level uh, combat? Oh, I don't know. Possibly. We shared a lot of ideas, yeah. you know, on RPG net and 
uh, on Google Plus, and I would I would hate to take ownership of anything that Evil Hat has subsequently. No, produced, I, I, thought, I thought he, he sure borrowed, borrowed something. You're like, hey, a, a shout would have been nice. <laughs> uh, there was a time when I might have felt that way, but you know, the bottom line is those guys were really running a serious business, and I yeah. wasn't. I really didn't care that much in the end. Yeah, I realized I didn't. It also, I wonder too, just like even musicians, um, you know, you, 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 like, how as a musician, do you ever like get everything out of your head so that everything you write is like, you, you yeah. can't, you like, there's stuff that just floating around. You forget like everything else. It's like little pieces here, little pieces there. And they just kind of, they all come together. Yeah. Um, and there was a degree to which I think I would have been flattering myself that some of the stuff we did was uh, just totally not obvious when in fact, some of it's pretty obvious ways to manipulate the system. And people coming up with it independently is not that big of a surprise. Yeah, one time I was uh, I was doing uh, uh, more of my photography days as another, another city. I was having a, a different kind of class, but uh, this, I, this other guy was getting into photography. And then I went and looked, and it's like, there were some sort of exhibit somewhere I saw. I was like, that was like one of the pictures that I took. And I stared at it and stared at it. It's like, no, it's at basically the same area that I was standing shooting the same yeah. subject. And then the more I thought about it, I was like, this is stupid. Anybody could have shot. There's nothing really original about what I did. I, it was original to me. I'm sure lots of people have gone and taken pictures of those, of those, you know, lights on these pipes across this, on this viaduct. I mean, For sure. you know, In but for a minute, there's a bit of like, it's like, after I thought yeah. about it, like, this is crazy. <laughs> like, yeah. There, there was a fair amount of that. I mean, that was one of the reasons we moved away from fate too for subsequent games was just it was such a small pool, so full of people that it was really hard to do anything that you could even pretend was original at some point, just because there was so much fate stuff going on after right. diaspora. Well, the thing because you you were toying, I I if I if I remember correctly, that you were doing a, a fake core version. Is that not yeah, good? we played with that for a while. Yeah, we've we've bounced back and forth playtesting various second edition diasporas. One was Fate Core. One was stripped the engine out and put something else in. But uh, in the end, Diaspora plays pretty good. <laughs> tinkering with it didn't seem to make it all that much better. Honestly, it, it's a good game the way it is. I figured at the end, just leave it alone and do something else. Yeah, like it, it, it's it's just kind of interesting as far as you know systems, what's hot, what's not, and in the people. And I think what I've also noticed is there seem to be at least in the Google Plus community, it's like there seem to be a, a large core of people who really weren't it. They like keeping things as very loose and abstract, and they seem to kind of fight against anything that would take it in any different direction. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a complicated time because you've got this this um, the social medium of Google Plus just burgeoning with so many people suddenly connecting who didn't know each other. Um, but Kickstarter hadn't happened yet either, so we were all selling stuff just through word of mouth. Right. Like you know, we moved several thousand copies of Diaspora just by posting how clever we thought we were being on RPGNet. Like that's it, just RPG net. That was where we sold copies, and then directing people to Lulu or wherever they get their copy. So, 
Yeah, I mean, it was, it's a whole different social environment than it is now. Now everybody wants whatever's new, whatever's hot, and Kickstarter is part of driving that. I think it's just because people really dig throwing money at Kickstarter for some reason. You know, I think it, I think there's a number of reasons. I think it kind of, I think it's a couple of things. You, know, you mentioned it, it. It does seem to, it, it seems like a, it's its own social aggregator. I mean, it's, it's a, for whatever reason, it, it, it's not true everybody goes there, but it's, it is definitely a huge marketing. It is a huge marketing tool for those who are putting material up for Kickstarter. I mean, mm -hmm. that engine for suggesting things to people on emails, to um, notifying when people are going to launch something, to, I mean, it just, it yeah. really is a pretty marvelous thing. So it is kind of tapped into probably like Facebook does. They, they know they play a video, you're going to watch it. They know if you're going to, you know, yeah, yeah. They, that type of thing. Yeah, it's also, I mean, it, I was kind of soured on it right away, although I wasn't really sure why. Um, but before Kickstarter, we were doing, so many people were doing print on demand because you didn't have to mess with any of, you didn't have to have a publisher. You didn't have to deal with, uh, warehousing. You didn't have to necessarily hire people. You would just make your thing, put it in a PDF, send it to Lulu and they would print books to anybody who wanted them. Right. There was yeah. none of the, none of this, um, traditional publishing needed to go on at all. You didn't need a whole publishing infrastructure. You just need to ship a PDF, press a button and tell people where to get it. And they'd get a physical book. But Kickstarter doesn't embrace that model at all. It, it goes backwards to the old publishing model. What you're doing is you're, you're trying to get enough investment funds that you can create the publishing infrastructure to do your printing and warehousing and hiring and so on. Oh, definitely for definitely for larger products, that is true. In fact, I think that's the only reason why companies can be successful now. Sure. Because yeah. I think the main thing, too, is like you don't have to outlay your cash up front and speculate. Yeah. So if you're like, I think I'm going to sell 5,000 copies, but I don't know. Yeah. But you only have to speculate if you're going to go through that traditional investment cycle in order to make the book. Yeah. Um, Are you going to put 4,000 in advance and warehouse them somewhere and find distributors? That's all problems we didn't deal with. Right. Yeah. And what's, what's hard on Lulu and they print one copy for you. And what's also created an issue is, is it's what's been hard is like, if you do a Kickstarter, it's super easy to fulfill in the United States. Yeah. But the minute, uh, the minute you, you start shipping from the U S to Canada or overseas it just turns into a nightmare yeah i think another thing that changed with that is i remember i don't know if this is true because you know how memory is, is yes. intrinsically flawed but i remember at the time we were writing diaspora and just before that all kinds of people were just building their game like just one person writing maybe they got a friend to draw for it uh you know they're they're wife would do the editing you know it was just a really insular little chunk of work yeah and one would, would do all that work and then put it out and when kickstarter came out suddenly a lot of people who were embracing that, that kind of philosophy of development were suddenly really thrilled to be able to hire employees you know to hire writers oh, hire artists right and 
just politically and socially to me that was not the direction i wanted ever to go in i don't i don't want to be an employer i don't i don't want to i don't even want to run a spreadsheet for my business i I just want to sell <laughs> shit and ignore it. And occasionally you just, you take out some money and go to dinner. It's, we're good. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. It, so as soon as it became kind of a, a white collar job, I was not interested anymore. So Kickstarter was kind of a big indicator to me that that's that to stay a game designer. I was going to have to become an employer and I'm just not there. Well, the, the Zing community has kind of been thriving and it's actually kind of fits, I think, in that niche where you're not an employer, but you're still using Kickstarter as a means to uh, uh, to market and also to fulfill and not have to outlay your cash up front. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah. But Although with, it's still a traditional investment cycle, right? Because you're pre-printing and... No, you, 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 well, you, you may not print a... I don't print any of my stuff until... Until the Kickstarter is completed, and then that's when I I do the print run. But I mean, you have to invest in a print run. Like you've got to guess that you're going to sell a thousand or five hundred or whatever. Yeah, you set your minimum. But yeah, I oh, I, yeah. I basically set mine to break even. So, but the problem is I've already out. But again, I I've already outlaid cash. So it's like even before I start the Kickstarter, I'm already I already have money and time. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah, can be. The art. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say is if you're real brave, you can you can you can fund it and then try and create it. That's just is that's fraught with the right. disaster. Uh, our, our philosophy from diaspora going forward is we weren't gonna do this if there was any risk. Like I'm not risking anything except my time because all the time we spent doing this was a ton of fun anyway. It was all playtesting and writing amusing prose to read to each other. And there's nothing in there I wouldn't have done for free for myself anyhow. So we weren't going to risk anything. No one's going to put any money into any of it. And that was the philosophy going all the way forward. So maybe that's why Kickstarter never resonated with me because it just didn't fill a need that I had. Right. The idea that you're putting out a product that was sufficient itself, whether or not you had a hundred or a thousand or 10,000 people buying it. Well, because, because we were using pod, we didn't have to guess how many people there would be. Right. If only three people bought it, then only three people clicked on Lulu. Lulu only printed three copies. Who cares? Well, and I think I, you I all boxes of copies. You miss all the also. You're missing out on all the stress that a Kickstarter can entail just being on that journey. Oh, very deliberately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, the biggest investment risk we took that failed was buying a huge box of black uh, fudge dice, which. We were going to give away full sets to anybody who sent us a, a copy of their receipt for the book. Oh, that's neat. Uh, yeah, but we were only able to keep up with a couple dozen before it was obvious. There's no way we could afford to ship dice to all these people. You know, we're, we're basically spending the, the whole profit and shipping fees on the book that they bought. Well, that's so now I still have a box of black dice. Yeah, that, it's kind of like <laughs> Kickstarter, even though you're not. There's a number of people who, who thought they were had a successful Kickstarter until it came time to ship, and they realized they had a failure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or even later. Yeah. 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 And especially yeah, if you oversell and realize you need another print run, but you don't have any more money for it now. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's just... So anyway, that's the kind of thing I never wanted to get 
you know, and, and the little dice fiasco, which cost me a hundred bucks. That was my, uh, my touching the hot stove moment. <laughs> yeah. I think we all have our, our levels of, of what we're willing to risk. And, and I think it's also kind of interesting. You're talking about that. It's like it, one of the discussions I've been on Twitter with some people has been um, about like writing and pay rates and, you know, what's reasonable. Mm-hmm. And I just started thinking about it. Like if I were to, for me to write, like if somebody says, I'll give you six words a minute, I was like, or six word, uh, sense of word, I'd be like, uh, in, in my mind, I was like, no, it just takes me too long. I, I, it's, it's not worth it. But yet I will write myself. And then in the end, when it all works out and gets said, I get, I get paid way less than six cents a word. <laughs> but- <laughs> well, that's, that's kind of the, the, the tale of the entrepreneur, isn't it? Yes. You know, because you're driven and work 18 hour days <laughs> yeah. and inefficiently on coffee and too much and not enough sleep. You want to pay yourself slightly less than minimum wage. It, it's kind of funny how that is. You start thinking about like, you know, the stuff that we do, it's like, if you're trying to, you know, try and make a business out of it. It's just like, you think, well, I probably realistically want a person to be better off if it's just for financial reasons, just get a second job and just work at uh, Menards for <laughs> weekends. Well, honestly, we never, ever thought uh, anybody was going to quit their job doing it. Like that was never an objective. We were hoping to have a good bottle of whiskey at the table every week. Oh, there you go. Basically, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, nobody was quitting their day job to write games. That was not uh, not remotely a consideration. Yeah, I'm. Well, I'm getting close to uh, potentially being able to retire, at least as yeah, far as from the too. current job. So that's where I'm kind of looking for something that necessarily full time, but like it'd be nice to make a little extra cash. Yeah, I, I'm not so worried about that personally. Um, mostly because my girlfriend's younger than me, and she's got a really good job, so. That's all going to work out fine. Um, but I've got a friend. But, you know, I have all sorts of artistic endeavors I want to pursue, and I might sell some of it. I got a friend who's in a similar situation where he's he's actually close to sixty, and he's wanting to go retire and go do and sell the house and go places. He's like, "No, I can't keep working." <laughs> like, <laughs> well, my girlfriend likes working, so that's an advantage. Yes. But, you know, she works for the government, too, so she's got, like, 11 weeks of vacation. So it's, oh, yeah. compared to my vacation list, it's hardly working at all anyway. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like to get out of work in a year or two and pay the house off and just sit on my ass for a while. <laughs> yeah. Do what you want. Yeah, so, I mean, so, yeah. so his question, so is, is the SCA, so you guys are, are still, like, still, like, are you still working together and producing stuff or is it kind of like no. dwindled in number? Well, we did a lot of play testing up until um, a year ago, I guess. Um, but it was kind of half-hearted. There was, there was some writing going on, but it wasn't clear that we were ever going to go into a direction that would produce a game. So the soft horizon stuff is probably the last stuff that we seriously tested and produced. Um, and then I haven't gamed at all. Uh, since I don't know November of last year, I think the rest of the gang is still gaming, but they're playing some published game. Uh, they're not developing something new. Yeah, okay. So I mean, that might come back to me, but right now it's just not a priority. So well, there are seasons of life, and sometimes those seasons come back around. Just you know how that is. Yeah, I mean, it could happen. 
Yeah, there's no point in doing something just out of a feeling of obligation where it should be something that you do out of joy. Yeah, and I've also kind of broken down a lot of things that I loved about gaming into what I really loved. So I like writing. So now I'm just writing stuff, not necessarily games, but games you know drive a lot of writing. Love painting some kinds of miniatures. I have stopped caring whether or not there's a game for them. Now I'm just... So you're like the opposite. You, there's a people that buy the miniatures but never paint them, uh, and you're the the guy yeah. that that. Uh... No, well, I don't. I don't paint enough to play a game at any speed. You know, like uh, it would still be years before I had an army ready to play. But right now, I don't even have a game that's associated with the miniatures that I'm playing. Them. So I'm just taking painting them and making bases and things like that. But the art's always been interesting to me too. Well, and I know it's like with Sand Dogs, I believe you did the art for Sand Dogs, right? Yep, and King Machine. Yep. Yep. So that was, so that's been quite a beautiful word. I noticed that you, it's, of course, it's visual for those you can't hear, but it's just like, I remember, I think during that, I think during that time, was was that during Google Plus that you were working on that? I don't think so. I think that's after Google Plus or right around the disintegration of it, maybe. It might have been around the disintegration. Sure. I remember you using reference photos for that for that armored truck. Uh, I thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I posted that. Yeah, it would have just been transitional because I posted that on my blog. But I think very early, like I started the blog because Google Plus stopped. So where the blog begins, Google Plus ends. So there's a little bit of blur and overlap in there where I might've had some sketches when I got by Google Plus, but they became part of a blog post on how I use the photo references. Yeah, so it was a, uh, it's just kind of interesting where it, you know, it appears that the art and the, and, the, and the content kind of, I guess it appears kind of, they kind of work together as far as each other, inspiring the other, is that, is that the case? Well, I've always designed primarily with a set of images in my head that I want to deliver as part of the game. So Sand Dogs, I had a sort of rough idea of some images, and then I would write some, and then I would draw some of the things I was writing, and then go back and forth and assemble the game around that, that kind of heap of stuff that was going on with the imagery driving some writing and the writing driving some imagery yeah. so it's very iterative so the, on the tin it says uh is a diesel punk plane of lost gods scarce water and mercedes armored cars so so what's the <laughs> so what's the uh, so what is the, the pitch here for for sand dogs you know i've always hated that the whole elevator pitch thing yeah yeah I've always tried to encapsulate it. Every time somebody asks me what the pitch is for one of my games, I'm dead certain that this, whatever I tell them is totally different than the last time somebody asked me that. That's okay. So, yeah. So, the whole idea behind the Soft Horizon, sort of the underlying technology that drives all of those, all those games, all two of them, is the idea that there are multiple planes that connect to each other in some fashion. And something totally different is going on each one. So each one could be a totally separate game, but you could plausibly move from one to another in some fashion. So building each of those games was mostly a matter of figuring out what, what kind of hook made this plane 
its own place. Sound Dogs really grew out of the imagery from uh, Jean Giraud's uh, The Airtight Garage of Jerry Cornelius from okay. old heavy metal magazines. Yeah. And all those low concrete bunker buildings, desert scenes, you know, the guy shooting a submarine with a bow and arrow, all kinds of misplaced technology, old aircraft that where there shouldn't be aircraft at all, all that sort of stuff was kind of piling through my head. I wanted to recreate the feeling that that cartoon had for me. And when I read about Jean Giraud writing that, he basically had no idea where it was going as a story. He was just drawing cool shit that he thought would be fun to draw and then trying to connect it into a story as it evolved. And so Sound Dogs is not very different from that. It's a lot of imagery kind of glued together to make this, this pastiche of a, of a world uh, and then some tables and things so that you can generate uh, um, elements of the world that are consistent with that, that sort of artistic theme that's going on. So, so I guess was, was the armored car, was that central to the whole thing? Is that like the, the uh, thing that glued <laughs> it all together? It was definitely a big thing. The one on the cover is is a misdrawn Mercedes armored car from yeah, like 1923 or 25 or something like that. And when I saw the image that I, that I took as the baseline for that, then I was sure I was going to make a game because now I had a cover. And that's usually when I start making a game shortly after I build a cover. You know, it's funny because I, um, I, I don't put together games, but I've been doing different things. But it is funny how you, you, you kind of partway through, you at least need to get a cover to kind of at least it provide some sort of like it, it can provide an amount of inspiration and direction. And uh, yeah, and it, it sort of puts, I'm not sure how to phrase it. I mean, it, it puts a label on what you're doing that you're constantly seeing whenever you reference it. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I'm typing in a document that's led by a complete cover and title that's roughly expressing what I want to do, I find that a compelling way to keep, keep doing the work. The cover will change over time, but there's always going to be a cover. Right, because I think it does just generate an emotion, at least for me. Yeah. And, it, and, and it like be... I said, sometimes it's just one image I want to deliver. The whole game is about one image. It's kind of funny. One of, you know, one of my favorite books is that it's called The Man Who Was Thursday by G.K. Chesterton. Mm-hmm. I think the whole book was written for two paragraphs. Uh, that sounds like Chesterton. Yeah. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I, sometimes I would go back. I just read those two paragraphs. I, it was, it was the, the book itself was, was fulfilling. And then just going back and just sometimes just, I would just open it up to that page and just, just read those two paragraphs. And, and yeah. uh, you know, it's just they—they they both it stood together on its own. It stood together for those two paragraphs. Uh, I give you another example. Um, in Ontario, here, there's a huge salt mine, and it's—I was reading about it, and it's so vast that they bring heavy machinery down into the salt mine, drive it down into the salt mine, and drive it out to the edges of the of the base that they're digging, and they run the machinery until it dies, and then they just leave it there. Like there's no money in trying to drive it all the way back out. This place is so huge. Yeah. So it's this massive graveyard of machinery that's between 10 years old and 100 years old, sort of scattered in the, in the different branches of this mine with the new machinery at the end still clawing out. And I thought, 
that's got to be a scenario. That's that's a diaspora game, right? <laughs> Being in this, say, an alien mine of similar magnitude where dead machines are all over the place and still functioning machines are at the at the ore face still digging. Well, yeah, because now so, we're dealing with, in, in real life, you know, we're moving more towards automation. And so, you know, right conditions, those, those things would just keep going without people. Yeah. But it was just that image I wanted to deliver. So that's like a whole campaign already <laughs> almost written because I just need to navigate all the characters until they get to that to see that image and then, then I'm happy. Games run that way. Campaigns run that way. Everything works that way for me. Yeah, and I think too, it's like, you know, you're right. Because I know I've sometimes could, could uh, you, right. Even like with a scenario or a venture for your friends, it's especially short ones, you, you kind of, you think of a couple scenes and you're like, okay, yeah. I got a couple scenes in my mind now. Yeah, there's definitely <laughs> something you want to describe to them or something, right? <laughs> or, or somebody's voice who you want to do or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty cool. And Hollow Point, uh, that one says bad people killing bad people for bad reasons. <laughs> that is, I think, our most vastly underappreciated game. I still think that's probably the best game we ever did. Hollow Point is hilarious. And I, I, I think we oversold the violence. And people thought, oh, no, I don't want to go there. It's too dark, too gritty. And it's, it's definitely not that. It's much more, I'm not sure how to put it, because it, it actually derived from a, a friend of mine who was playtesting with us at the time, who was um, taking a lot of classes and things about nonviolence, like, like really kind of radical nonviolence, not just avoiding punching people, but avoiding emotional violence and, and all these sorts of things. and. So we naturally started thinking about games and violence in games because violence in games is really kind of a reflexive solution to every problem that's yes. always kind of bothered me. And Diaspora has a lot of other opportunities in violence, but still all the subsystems are about violence, and that's always been kind of distressing. But so I was feeling like I would like to build a game that's, that functions without violence. And I thought, first, what if we had a game where you could only be violent. Like you can't reach for the dice unless it's something violent. And so all the characters are obviously awful. The only skills that they have are ways to be horrible to other people. And so that's obviously a good <laughs> But it's got a lovely death spiral into it. So it only lasts about four hours and then it's done. And uh, there's a lot, a lot of little dice manipulation game on the table, sort of reminiscent of uh, Greg Stoltz's or uh, like Rain. Uh, uh, so there's some dice matching stuff that's fun, just in a tactile way to do at the table. Uh, but overall, I think it's a really, really fun and uh, dare I say, although there are two critical authors, one of which is not me, dare I say, a smart take on violence and how violence works in games so i guess and i know mechanically it's not uh like fiasco but is it kind of that whole idea of like fiasco where things start out not being great and it just it's it's designed to just spiral down at that point 
Interestingly, no. Uh, Fiasco came out after, and I was really inspired by Fiasco afterwards. I thought, I wish I had thought of that for Hollow Point, for things to constantly go bad. Yeah. Um, but things tend to kind of go bad anyway, even though that's not the way we designed it. But, <laughs> but we did design it so that, like, every every time you go to a scene that involves dice, you want to be progressing the plot, working towards a solution to this mission that you've been assigned, whatever it is. And every time you go to the dice for a scene, the opposition gets a little bit more difficult. So if you spend too much time waffling around doing scenes that aren't relevant to your mission, then things will get so hard that you can't finish, that you'll, you'll get trounced by the opposition at some point. You just won't have enough dice to bring to the table. So there's a way in which it naturally ends, and it's kind of up to you to navigate uh, uh, an efficient path through the narrative to get the mission solved before your opposition just becomes too powerful for you to take out. So that's, uh, that is sort of fiasco-ish, but you can win it. Like, you definitely can, can beat the missions um, and solve them before you run out of dice. But the, the, the fun element of it, the part that I loved, was if, you, if, if your character takes, I think it's two hits of the same type, then you're taken out. And you get to narrate how you're taken out, but you're, you're out, and you have to make a new character. And one of our playtesters just hated that. He definitely wanted characters that lasted from scenario to scenario right. and got more power. Very D&D mindset, I mean, he hated that. Um, so there's a little caveat in there for another way to do it if you want to do that. But what happens when you die is you bring in a new character, and that character outranks all the other characters at the table. And your first scene is giving them all shit for letting your other character die, <laughs> which is huge fun, dressing down the whole team for screwing up so bad that somebody died or quit the service forever or how right. they were taking it. So like Mr. Big, you know, you don't want Mr. Big, you know, to come and all of a sudden eventually you screw up and Mr. Big has to come in, is upset there, but screw everything up and is uh Exactly. And now they're a character in the scene. So, you know, somebody else dies, they get to bring in yet another even higher ranking character because <laughs> dressed down everybody else for screwing up that. It, but it, it only lasts like four or five scenes, so it doesn't get too ridiculous. Right. But it kind of makes me think of in some ways that even like Tarantino, where things can just get Things can seem fine, and all of a sudden things just start blowing apart. And and you're right, not everybody knows die, but it's just it's just sometimes it's just the spectacle of you know watching. Well, it's actually a really nice. It's a really nice um, feature of the way the dice fall in that system, in that if you get a lot of high dice that match, then you're going first, and you have some very effective effect, but then you have no dice left. So the natural narrative always runs sort of along the lines of, you know, you've got all the dice. You're obviously the one in charge. You leap out with two Uzis, mow down half the guys, and then run out of ammunition. And then the next character's got to pick up. Right. So there are all these kind of peaks and stalls in the narrative of the of the violence that are huge fun. I think. Yeah, it's kind of funny how a lot of times we're even we're like. I'm even thinking back with people talking about running like the OSR style games. You could have a magic user with like two hit points, but they're the ones that survive because everybody else is acting crazy and bullish. Uh, <laughs> I, 
<laughs> I've seen that both ways. I mean, I started playing D&D when I was 12, so I know about Wizards with two hit points. Uh, and I've never seen one get a second hit die, honestly. So. <laughs> It just, it is kind of funny because you, you know, the assumption is always, you know, that the people that, that have the big swords, the big armor, and the big hip which will be survive. But a lot of times, the people that have those are the ones that are up front making the most risks. And uh... <laughs> well, that's certainly a certainly a, a a feature of the kind of limited tactical possibilities in those sorts of situations. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's only so many things you can do, and if you've got the sword, you're up in front. Yeah, and it's also at least it seemed like back in our day, it's like and everybody kind of protected the magic user at least until they got to a certain level. So there's always a bubble around these these squishy characters, trying to get them to survive till they can cast fireball. Yeah, we we I, I was, this is probably very telling about me and my relationship with OSR in the end, but we really rapidly just stopped playing low level characters. Like I was probably 14 when we thought, you know fuck this, we're all going to start at fifth level and have some hit points <laughs> and be survivable. And that fireball would be on the horizon. We'd be yeah, yeah. We were going to get that. You know, um, that was a sweet spot, like fifth to eighth level. We play that all the time, but below or above it, nah. I think that's pretty much most, I think most, at least from what I understand, I'll, I'll say that's true because the internet's told me, but I think, I think fifth to seventh is, is generally what people enjoy the most. And that's probably where that's really the games quit is usually around seventh or eighth level. Yeah. Well, I don't want to speak for anybody else. Obviously, there's people who love all aspects. Of oh, no, they do. Game. But I'm just saying, it's, but you're right. There's a, I think there's a point where the complexity of is also, depending on the character playing, but you know, the complexity just keeps going up and up and up, especially, I think, with later games, that it makes it even it yeah. more difficult. Or, or earlier in the game, in early D&D, just by class. Like if you had a wizard at 18th level, you were just mired in managing your spell book yeah, all the exactly. time. You know, what spells are going in what slot where how many do I have, you know, or a cleric or any spellcaster for that matter. Yeah. yeah. Or it's just if it's so eventually uh, I started thinking, you know, if level fifth to eighth is where the action's at, then why does the game even have all the rest of this? And that's when I started thinking about other ways to play these games like surely it's going to be just so the good stuff fifth edition what they did is they just accelerated the point of going from first to third like that's right. your your hyper acceleration that slows down but there's other people that look at that and, and lose their minds <laughs> well I'm, I'm glad they have another game to play you know? <laughs> yeah. like, like everybody my, else the same game yeah, I don't know why they just don't know the rules. Just sometimes to say, you know what, you guys just want to at least explicitly say it. If you want to start at third level, start at third level. If you want to start at eighth level, start at eighth level. Knock yourselves out. Yeah. Yeah. And it was sort of clear from the rules when we read them at age 12 that we were expected to ad lib the rules like crazy and make shit up if we wanted to. If we want to start at seventh level, it wasn't, nothing said you couldn't do that. No. We never, we never did that. But what we would do, so we'll, we we would never violate that. That I think that would have been, yeah, we never did that. But what we would do is we would hyper accelerate the like if we needed fifth level characters, we just sit down and just roll up monster after monster after monster after monster. Yeah, <laughs> until we get enough experience points. Now we're now we're ready to go. We would yeah. never have thought of just why not just start at fifth level or whatever. 
the the bullet in the head for starting a first level happened probably when I was let's see it was with my friend Tim so that would have been high school so maybe fourteen and he really wanted to play an anti paladin he wanted to play a chaotic evil character and I thought okay so you can do that so you can start this first level anti paladin and but first level anti paladin still got no hit points and doesn't have enough money for good armor. So he tried to be chaotic evil. And, you know, the bartender slap him down and he'd wind up in his <laughs> black armor with big horns washing dishes in the back to make up for all the damage he did in the bar. That, that's when I realized that's not where the hero is, first level. That's just not where I wanted to play. No, it isn't. And you're right. It's just, uh, it, and even playing, because um, I was writing, um, uh, not uh, Age of Rebellion, the uh, FFG Star Wars, and and the the premise of that is, is zero to hero, and you know, yeah. like you start out with like no equipment. It's like a friend of mine is just like, like what's going on here? <laughs> like, yeah. Why can't we have good and equipment? Why can't we, you know, start out being cool? Instead, we're just a yeah. bunch of. There's this whole book of cool stuff that you can't have yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that's just reflexive. I think a lot of, uh, especially uh, game design for established properties, are mostly just kind of unimaginably using what's gone before as a as a as a template for what to do next in game design. There's yeah. been some differences more recently, but for a long time, it was I, well, just I think that, and that, that sort of stuff kind of I think also sells too. I mean. Yeah, yeah I mean, since progression in, in video games and things like that, there's a there's a well, surge. People well, not even like just that. that, but I mean, like if you're if you're buying if you're buying the license, if you have the license to to publish Star Wars books, you're not going to push. You're not going to publish a Star Wars book. Yeah, you're going to well, say I would, I would. They kicked me out right yeah. after the first one. <laughs> say no, we need to push as many books in the yeah. amount of time that we have this license as we could possibly sell. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. A, no, I would be a fan's nightmare if I ever took a property on like that. I, yeah. I would never do it. But I think that dealing with the property owner is probably a nightmare as well. So it's a bullet dodged, I'm sure. Yeah. I think it just depends. Uh, I've different, different depends on the property for P and there's another uh, guy. I know he's, he, he it's just another comic book proper. I mean, some of the smaller stuff, I think it actually can be very positive. Uh, mm-hmm. But something like Disney or whatever, that would be, yeah, it would be. Yeah, I don't know. My my sister, uh, years ago, she was a buyer for, I forget the name of the company, but they would license Disney products and they put them on sleeping bags and pencils and, you know, whatever. Right. And, she, and they would like, but they would have to send but they had rules so like you know like like Winnie the Pooh or whoever it's isn't just that it's just even how their hands are like they could be this way but they couldn't be this way i mean it's just like yeah <laughs> yeah and you got to imagine that for an rpg property that kind of um sensitivity dives way into your writing uh to the themes that you can present i mean everything yeah, Matt Forbeck, he has the uh, he's been writing the Marvel RPG, and um, so I was like, 
early on, uh, I was one. I, oh, I had him on my podcast last year, and then later I found he was doing it, and I just wanted to see if he come on. I knew he couldn't, but it's just like I didn't necessarily even expect him to even like talk any detail. But he's he was basically I cannot go on to any talk show or any podcast or anything. If you want to talk to me, and it involves in any way this. He gave me a name of somebody at Marvel. <laughs> so I emailed Marvel. Hey, can I talk to my, Matt Forbeck? <laughs> and a few days later, I was like, no. <laughs> we'll let you know if you can. If you can. <laughs> it was very nice. It was very nice. It was some guy who was just, yeah. he came across very warm. I mean, yeah, it was, it was, there was nothing corporate about yeah. it. The guy was just sincerely like, you know, it's, you know, when we get to doing that, we're going to evaluate. You know, but I just realized it's is a no. It's like I'm not no. <laughs> Esquire magazine. No, I, yeah, Jeff Jones, RPG Ramblings. Who are you again? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where I want to stay too. Who are you again? Is is exactly the response I want from people. <laughs> yeah, well, you, don't you, I remember you from something? <laughs> you something somewhere. Yeah, if so. I'm forever just a diaspora guy, that's fine. I'm, I can. Uh, yeah, and that, I, I need to I need to dust that off and and um, and, uh, and and have a look at. It. I got a, a, um, another friend. It's uh, I've interviewed before. He's he's big in a traveler, but I don't know if, if Bob's actually Lofton's actually heard of uh, diaspora or not. But it's it's something I kind of and I think like you, at least when I was earlier on, I tend to be more of I would play a system that would be tied to a, like a setting tied to a system. I think, mm-hmm. you know, like this system, would be, this, this setting would be better in a different, <laughs> a different dice mechanic. And I would always, my old thing was just important error. I couldn't just, you know, take it at face value. It just had to be, you know, blades in the dark. I convert to cortex. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I'm the same way, but in reverse, I'll play a game and I can see all the things this system is doing right. But I hate the setting. <laughs> Other people's settings just drive me nuts. I have no interest in them at all. Yeah, it's like so. I took Blades in the Dark and and um, and and kind of did a version of Cortex with that, and that worked out okay. But then I, in fact, the problem is I don't really want to go back to Cortex. But then I was looking at RuneQuest, and I was like, well, that probably worked pretty good. Cortex. <laughs> like, stop, 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 stop. <laughs> <laughs> that's insanity there there lies madness <laughs> like it's just uh yeah I mean, that's the kind of thing that we do i think honestly i think for a lot of us that's the crux of the hobby right there is what we hack games into doing yeah i mean my my first four way for a i recall was was taking moral project the 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 mechanics as far as the the, the combat and the characters and then using that to play traveler Oh yeah, that was, that was stupid. Do you remember Hardmaster from Columbia Games? I have never ever. I I remember the ads. I never owned Hardmaster. Super gritty medieval fantasy, uh, you know, with hit locations that go down to almost which part of the wrist you get hit in, and there's no hit points. There's just sort of degrees of disabilities from hit. Anyway, it's <laughs> incredibly complex. Um, well, not complex, but complicated uh, medieval fantasy system. Very, very gritty. And the first thing I did when I got it was think, how can I work firearms into this system? 
and then why don't we play Traveler with this? <laughs> so you see that Diaspora is not actually novel to me. There are a whole yeah. string of Travelers played with <laughs> ridiculously inappropriate systems in my past. <laughs> You know, it, you know, going back to just Traveler, uh, that whole, uh, I, I can't remember the whole paragraph, but that whole Mayday, Mayday, this is, a, you know, the, the, was yeah. the free trader. That still just gets me. I mean, just, you know, hearing, there's that something about Traveler. Cold open. Yeah. <laughs> Even just that cold open. That's, that's like the best elevator pitch ever. Is like, don't tell me about your game. Just give me that paragraph. Of, yeah. I want to play that game. And somebody who started like, knocking the logic of it i'm just thinking just stop (laughs) Stop. yeah it's it's perfect it's just like it is it's just yeah but i i think it's it's to me traveler it's like it it still holds my imagination and i'm not exactly sure why it does of all the games i've ever played i didn't necessarily played it the most uh, but it's definitely that holds my my heart probably more than most others do for i'm not sure what it is about it well, for me, there's three things, I think. One is the fact that for all of the science fictionness, the technology is largely just modern day, the, the practical application of technology. Right. You know, you know, yeah, you can get fusion guns, but most people are wearing bulletproof vests and carrying a submachine gun and a knife. So, so it's very accessible in that sense. And the other two things are character generation and world generation are fabulously rich like you just got so many good things in a character generation the random character generation system with you just kind of nudging it in certain directions by picking careers gave you characters that all had story and the world generation was just wacky enough that you would have stats that didn't make sense but that you could make a story to make sense of right you know, right like stone age technology on a vacuum world what the hell's going on there? And superficially, you'd say, oh, that's impossible. But then you start thinking, well, what if it's a society left behind in, you, you know, the, the sealed colonial spaces inside this asteroid? Now you've got a whole story suddenly just by trying to make sense of this, uh, this random generation that didn't quite produce logical results. So I found that very inspiring for everything. Like that's, that's the nugget of creativity that just drives whole traveler games but i think the other thing is there wasn't a and i think D, it's not necessarily prescribed but there's kind of a prescribed play with travelers they tell people it's like you know if, if you're into if you're into finance yeah you can get a spreadsheet you can get the star lanes you can play the like gerpsa or even the it was a far trader and yeah you, you can you can knock yourself out yeah, it's yeah. Just, but the man. obverse to that is, and we're not going to tell you which way to play it. So no. I think a lot of people were just left kind of hanging without, without something to start on, right? Whereas D and D, at least, it right up front it said, you know, at least in the basic books that we got, it said like, here's a dungeon. Roll up your characters, try to get through the dungeon. Yeah, exactly. That's really straightforward. And you start hanging your own narrative on it. Why are we in the dungeon? What do we do after the dungeon? It's a really smooth introduction to role-playing games in that sense you do something really obvious and you start to wonder what else you can do with things 
travel with it. Just throw you in the deep end. You want to play Star Wars with this? Yeah, you can do that. You want to do this with this? Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, and I think there's really, and honestly, there's really no, I don't think any of the, for the most part, I don't think there's been any of the early published material. I don't know if I've really found a really good um, traveler adventure that's been published. Now, it's not saying I've read them all or read a lot of them, but it just, the earlier ones just did not provide guidance for a 15-year-old to run. Uh, In that sense, no, they weren't good. No, I mean, there are a lot of them and they have a lot of good kernels of ideas in them. Yes. Uh, but, but no, none of them were really, none of them really took you by the hand and brought you into the game and said, this is what you're going to do. Now go do more of that. Yeah. d and gave us that. Yeah. But part of that, I think, is because the authors, they didn't really know what you were going to do with it. I didn't care. Well, and it was, yeah, and it was definitely early on. I think you know, it, things are getting invented. It's like, you know, who knows, you know, all you, like, I'm not sure with Velcro, maybe there's a thought for Velcro, but maybe it's turned into things they never imagined. I don't know, but. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, Diaspora got away with that mostly because it was bought by people who already knew how to play role-playing games. Like it takes the same right. traveler stick and says, you know, I don't know what you're going to do with this. Here's your characters. Here's the space. Go nuts. Obviously, if you already know what a role-playing game is and, and, and how it can play out, then you already have ideas of what your character is going to do in this universe you've created and you've made hooks for each other and so on. But if you were starting fresh, you'd be, you'd be in hot water. You couldn't play. Yeah, it is, and it, you're right. And there's a lot, you're right, because there's a critical mass, I think especially even now okay. with, uh, even now with, let's say D&D, a lot of, there's a lot of things people can watch and kind of get the gist of. Yeah. You know, and even if it isn't, you know, traveler, you can still watch something from D and D. It's like, okay, now I kind of get it. But, uh, but back the yeah, day, I mean, all really the videos there. of actual play, those are, those are great examples that give people a leg up for all role playing game. All right. They, they give you all of the assumptions that we're making when we write a game and don't bother to tell you actually how to play it. <laughs> Yeah, and I think you know with dungeons, it's 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 easy. It's just point to point to point to point. And uh, I think the, it, it, I think with science fiction, it, it's kind of like the same thing with even with movies. It's like some of the things that can, I think probably create the the uh, tension is being stuck in a location, not being able to communicate. You know, yeah. once you start adding cell phones to movies, horror movies become less scary, or yeah, just snap your fingers and teleport to another dimension you know there's there's no big deal but uh yeah. i think but the, tra- and that's kind of that's oh, a kind ahead. of that's the kind of referee advice that needed to be in travel and should have been in diaspora too how do you start so that the characters suddenly have important and relevant choices to make you know you're stranded is a great way to start yeah, there's all kinds of things you can do in D&D you had a dungeon you're going in the dungeon why are yeah, we going, exactly. in the dungeon? going in the dungeon and then then you, you sort of incrementally increase your interest in the world right you start how am I going to navigate this dungeon should I search for secret doors whatever then it's what do I do with my treasure are there other dungeons to visit what is this weird world with all the dungeons you know you, you open up your eyes 
Science fiction is often the other way around, certainly with diaspora, where you build this whole complex net of worlds with socio-political conflicts and then stick the characters in it. And it's like they already have the broad strokes, and now they're supposed to figure out what they do day to day inside there. And that's that's not nearly as friendly a way to start a game. Right. As, and as you got a ship, you can do anything. Yeah. You, you, you could anything. I mean, as far as like I remember why one of this is one from the the adventure uh or the 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 hardback book where it has the the pyramid that you can go explore. Well, yeah. it's on an acid atmosphere. And the guy's like, <laughs> like that's my my new ship. I go, I am not, I am not spending any time in that atmosphere <laughs> with <laughs> yeah, my new ship. I will drop ship. this person <laughs> off, but I will not keep you can call me when it's done. You're ready, but I am not landing the ship. Yeah. This is like well, this is why so many traveler games and diaspora games often as well devolved into trading missions or something, right? As soon as you figure out, oh, your ship needs a certain amount of maintenance, need a certain amount of money, I guess we better haul a cargo from A to B. Suddenly that's the game, is hauling cargo from A to B and back and forth and incidental adventures along the way, which is fine. I don't think it's really what anybody intended Traveler to be, but, but that's sort of the, the way it worked itself out to play that. I think for us, we're just building the fights. We just invented bizarre reasons to be mercenaries on alien worlds. Yeah, Ken Heights said, I think he was in the University of Chicago, and there were people who were like, uh, you know, getting like their master's degree in economics or finance. And it was for them, that was it, was the, was the trade. Yeah. I mean, they, they really, <laughs> which is fine if that's what everybody wants to do. So, but if you, it's not, but I think what's also fun is, is you know if you can get somebody to invest like this is the thing then and you know what the hook is then you can mess with the players oh yeah 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 for for sure you need you need some character some player to say that their character genuinely really cares about x and they're willing to risk everything for it for for a campaign to really take off in a direction yeah yeah you can't because you can't just as a ref say, okay, you really care about this, so you're going to do it. Yes. That, that never flies. They're immediately going to kick back and say, well, no, I don't care about that. I mean, we're going to look for, you know, a better paint job for the spaceship or something. I've, I have a, uh, I had a friend who was, there's like, he, he, the big thing for him was any sort of hidden knowledge, whether it would be an encrypted device that didn't really matter or some sort of like magic knowledge he would yeah. fight every time i mean you could you could set the dominoes <laughs> however you wanted knowing he's gonna hit that I first love one player. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is that's the meat and potatoes of any round yeah, yeah. <laughs> player like that is just cool yeah. yeah i've had players like that as well yeah. <laughs> and uh yeah you can create some very very fun situation i think what's what's fun about traveler is that on one hand you can um, you can do the uh, a, a different planet every week, so to speak. It's 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 very doable. But I think to me, like with Star Wars, which I find kind of a not kind of I do find annoying, both in the uh, both in the movies and also with the with the subsequent games, is that it's planet hopping all over the place. 
Yeah. Like to me, it's like, it's kind of cool. If you get a sense of a, of a place, you just spend a, you know, a session or two. Just Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm not a space opera fan. Um, but I, I wrote Elysium Flare, which is, was the last fate project I did. And it's a space opera game, pretty tongue in cheek, more kind of satirical or a parody maybe of, of space opera in general. Um, just to see if I could originally to figure out if I could figure out what people liked about space opera. If I could write a game that I wanted to play that was space opera, what would it be? And uh, in the end is, it turns out I don't really like space opera. <laughs> but, but one of the things I wanted to do was figure out what, what's everybody going to do? Like, okay, it's space opera, but you know, Luke had something to do and was sort of compelled by events. All of these stories, somebody has something they got to get done. And it's usually one character who's got an objective and they're kind of dragging everybody else. You don't really want to do that in a game. You don't want one character to be dragging everybody else along. So what can you do to, to kind of reconcile that? So what we did in Elysium Flare is one of the first things you do as a group is roll up your organization. You belong to some organization. And the organization has two features uh, rolled from the same table. So you might roll, say, military and then academic. So if you roll military first, it's a military organization funded by some government for the purpose of defending or attacking. And you guys are a bunch of scholars in the military. And, and so the first thing the characters have to do is figure out what exactly this organization is and make sense of incongruous data like old Trump right. would do world. <clears throat> and then each of those um, solutions would come with uh, a problem that's intrinsic to it. So you start out having to solve a, a particular problem that's relevant to the organization. So all the characters belong to the same organization. So you're dragged along by the organization instead of one character who's got a job to do. And you start with something to do. So you don't have a dungeon necessarily, but you've got an objective to solve. That's something that I reuse throughout the Soft Horizon stuff as well, because it's really a powerful way to avoid just having everybody adrift and wondering, okay, we've got a spaceship, but what do we do with it? Yes. So I, I didn't wind up liking space opera, but I got the organization's technology out of that, and that was fun. So you could do, yeah, you could do like even <clears throat> uh, even more like modern, like conspiracy or, oh, or yeah. urban fantasy. Well, I've got a copy of Sandrox here. Let me just drag it out and see what a short example would be. I don't see it on your website on itch. Is it not on itch? Uh, inevitable revolver scaffold diaspora sand dog soft horizon Callisto, hollow point and the king machine what were you looking for uh elysium flare oh no it's not i'm not sure why it's not there hmm. probably because it's a uh, i'm not sure why it's there. not there i might not have been happy with it uh, <laughs> i mean you can, you can get it from lulu uh <laughs> I'll, I'll put it up another time, but but uh, yeah, I obviously was not super happy with it. I love the art in it, but who did the art? I did. 
Well, uh, actually, I had uh, Juan Ochoa from Colombia. He did a bunch of work in there for me. Well, yeah. I remember, if I recall correctly, <laughs> that was a very impressionable time. I believe you brought him on for something, and he was like a co-collaborator. It was oh. a project. What was yeah. that? Oh, that was that was early days. We were, um, that was shortly after Hollow Point. Um, that Jeremy Keller Friesen, one of the great Jeremys of the Google Plus days. I, I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten his name. But he and Juan and I started working on a project called Swallowmere, which was basically Hollow Point, except that the the milieu was um, sort of the Dungeons and Dragons world, but modern after you know a thousand years of technology and getting used to the fact that magic's everywhere and magic being kind of quasi mundane uh, and pervasive. Uh, but you playing badass troubleshooters in this skinny tie wizard sort of environment uh you know orcs with mortar carriers and stuff like that yeah <laughs> anyway we got some great art for it and a lot of it we, we posted up on google plus one did some amazing work for that yeah but it never really took off as a project what what, what happened you mean what killed it yeah like what was the sticking point? was a sticking point we we're like everything's chugging along fine and all of a sudden it's like <laughs> it just kind of petered out you know, the, the writing, we weren't doing as much. We, we did a whole bunch of enthusiastic work up front and then probably wasn't sufficient direction. The writing wasn't getting done and started to lose touch. I think then Google Plus disappeared shortly after that. Um, yeah. I mean, I can go back to that in a heartbeat. I, I've still got all the files lying around here somewhere. Uh, but everybody's got real lives now to deal with. <laughs> And mostly, I think, in the end, what was really cool about it was the images that Juan was checking out. Well, I, I think so your premise was that the, I, if I recall correctly, I am just I don't want to be putting words in your mouth, but the idea is that you wanted the art to, to actually to also inform the game and that the idea was to have the artist really just be, a, the art being an integral part, not just of the, the final product, but making the product. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, maybe from a project management perspective, that actually didn't turn out to be such a hot idea. You know, we, we burned out on the ideas pretty fast. We had great images, but no really good way to link them together into something coherent. That's just so. too bad. Well, you, you, <clears throat> you, who knows in the future, you say you may dust that thing off and. Uh... Yeah, it could still turn into something. I mean, you got to like the image of, you know, two D&D characters in three piece suits with submachine guns and wands on a hang glider flying in towards a dragon or something like that it's, or an ultralight I forget what the image was but there's some great images definitely we were really into the whole skinny tie violence thing at the time <laughs> is that after well, dogs? Dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah major influence on me <laughs> You could do worse. You could do far worse than that. <laughs> oh yes, yeah. No, I'm, I'm I'm not ashamed of that at all. That's a, that's definitely a, one of the uh, the big 
driving forces in building hollow point was certainly reservoir dog. I remember watching, uh, I was watching uh, the hateful eight one time. I was just watching little pieces here or there on the, on the treadmill. And my friend was like, to my friend, about, this is a really good movie. Cause I don't really like, you know, Tarantino movies or blood in your mind. It's like, I've been watching it so far. I said, there's, there's there hasn't been anything. <laughs> And then yeah. there was the twist. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. But but I felt I did watch um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a few months I've ago. I've not seen that. Uh, that has the same kind of hinge to it. Oh. Suddenly it's a Tarantino movie. <laughs> yeah. Do you, have you seen Inglorious Bastards? Yeah. yeah. So the basement. <laughs> Don't want to go in the basement. Plan wasn't going in the basement. That's not going to work out. We got to go in the basement. <laughs> He foreshadowed that and drove it in, drove it in, and it finally happened. You know, Hateful Eight, I highly, highly recommend. Oh Is that goodness. right? I've been off and on Tarantino. I mean, I loved Reservoir Dogs. Most of the stuff in the middle I didn't really get into, and then I saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I thought there were some amazingly smart aspects to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. The way I was dragged through that narrative was really smart. Like he assumed the audience knew what was going on and then kind of tugged <laughs> you I thought it was really very wise movie. I'll, I'll have to uh, put an emphasis to make sure I, I, I see that. Uh, yeah. The Hateful Eight is, it basically forces a bunch of people into a, a single large cabin. And then right. it's, it's kind of almost like, uh, I don't want to say it's like 12 Angry Men or um, Lifeboat, but the idea is it's, stuff's it's in this one space and things that's happen. Whole set. Yeah. yeah yeah and it's and it's and that's what i think and and uh you know it's just the actors are just it, they're just great so it was just uh, uh i'll have a look at it i didn't realize it was all kind of driven into this tiny set like rope or something like that that sounds awesome <laughs> i like those kinds of constraints in a film it's, it's a lot of fun yeah i remember have you ever seen lifeboat it's an alfred hitchcock yeah. movie and that yeah, one always, I love, that was like, well, I think my favorite Hitchcock movie. Yeah. And that. I and, put that one in a rope at the top too. And, and rope is similarly all. I've not seen that. Tiny space. That's what the college kids who decided to murder someone. To no. see if they can get away with it. Oh, That's dark. Yeah. That's really dark. But the corpse is like in a cabinet that's constantly in the scene. Oh, that is like, cool. All of the conversation takes place right around the body, basically. It's pretty brilliant. Well, and also he did the same thing with Rear Window, where almost all of it was just in this yeah. guy's apartment. He had a broken leg, and because he had the broken leg, he couldn't move. Yeah. And then he was sending his girlfriend in danger, or she was going. So that was kind of a brilliant thing, too, as far as the constraint. And you couldn't necessarily see what she was doing, but you could see like a lot of times the expressions that he had watching her exactly exactly yeah yeah everything that's happening to other characters happening somewhere remote where you can just barely see it yeah i, I actually to bring it back around to role-playing games those, those kinds of films i've always loved those that sort of conceit really underscore just how different media games and film are and i think efforts to make games that are like film are often really misguided. Film does something totally different. I you think you do 12 Angry Men as a role-playing game. I think 
I think it works only in like the aspect of something like fiasco where in yeah, one guy says really that's tight. Like, yeah. yeah, and it has to be crafted for that experience because otherwise yeah. it's but those don't necessarily work great for a sort of long form. Like no, you can have a you can have a game where lifeboat is a session, but not the game per se. Right. Or not the campaign. <laughs> but not the campaign. And in fact, even one guy I had on, um, he was stating that uh, he doesn't think, I can't remember, but to him, that's not really an adventure. That's just more of a, an event or a, a nice, what he, I read the term he called it. But he doesn't really consider it like a role-playing game. That's just a, a, an activity. That's what he called it. Yeah, I, I don't like to just uh, anything. You don't like to just, what? Just a. Uh, and then just yeah. a role-playing game, just as uh, um, I don't think the taxonomy is interesting, I guess, ultimately. It, it was kind of a role-playing it, game, it's fine. It, it was interesting. I, I think it's kind of interesting to um I find it finally interesting to discuss, but but in the end, it's like I still enjoy playing it either way. It's just it's just uh it's still fun, but uh yeah, or just you know, if you want to call it something different. Okay, that thing yes. that you just named—that's what I like. <laughs> I just like the idea where things can tilt and twist, and I think it's what we like about the uh, the uh, Coen Brothers films can be that way, and Tarantino, to a certain degree, can be that way. Um, oh, Fiasco was a major eye opener for me as to what what a, a role playing game could potentially do. I mean, that's that's aspirational. I'd love to be able to pull something like that off. I think that's a really wise, wise game. Yeah, I've got the. I've not had a chance to play it much. They they revamped the game, and made it into a, a card based game rather than got oh, rid okay. of, the, of the dice. Well, that so. simplifies things. That's probably a good, good move. It does. I played it once, and I just realized I need to watch the uh, as we talked before about <laughs> the uh, um, actual play. It's like I I should watch an actual play, but uh, but I, it is kind of fun where you can have uh, those crazy things happen that you can't foresee in the beginning. And in the end, it's, yeah. it's satisfying to. Although, although we played the ice station one several times, and every time somebody gets buggered by the polar bear. So. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of crazy. It's, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So just don't go near the. Don't go near the polar bear. Or at least be the last. Don't be the last person to bring the polar bear into the scene. Yeah, you're you're better off if you see the bowler coming. Just just douse <laughs> yourself with chum and and just pray just end your life. And <laughs> yeah, it's that's kind of interesting. so. What so what sort of things if you were to if is there anything in the media or that you're that you would if you were to start uh, get the the uh, the blip of inspiration to to try and create a game? What would it be now? Do you think? Oh, uh, that's tough. I have absolutely no inspiration to create a game right now. Um, Is there a media that you're, it's cat your attention now? Is it a certain type of genre, a certain type of? Uh... Um, that's a tough one. Not really. I've been rereading a lot of old novels. Um, I don't watch a ton of TV. And film, honestly, um, I still love rereading uh, Ian M. Banks stuff. I would love to be able to pull off 
uh, something in the vein of the culture novels. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure that's possible. I'm kind of have to have exactly the right people at the table, I think, to make it work. Yeah, I guess that is kind of the problem, too, right? Because a lot, like, you know, like, say, Call of Cthulhu, it's, it, it, even though it's very popular, it does take a certain, it does take a certain mindset to be, to, for that to play it and to make it work. Yeah, yeah. Um, if, you're, if you're playing a Banks novel, you really want, you think of some of the, if you're familiar with the NM Banks, are you? I'm familiar with the names. I've never read any of the Ian Banks' books. Okay. Some of the most exciting scenes are the rare scenes where a, a, a ship, which are all piloted by these enormously smart AIs, vastly more intelligent, does something violent. And it's, there's a relatively short description of the combat that takes place in fractions of a second. Right. Oh, millions of decisions are being made and so on. Um, but if you were going to play in that milieu, you would want to be able to play a ship. And that's fraught with all kinds of difficulties in a role-playing game. You know, oh, the mind jammer capability. Have you, have, you, have you read Mind Jammer by... <laughs> the dogs are, are crazy. Uh, have you read Mind Jammer by Sarah Newton? No. So she took a fake core and she kind of ran with it. And it's, it's kind of a, I, I think in the idea that it's, I don't know how to describe it, but it's definitely, it, it would imagine like if you were to take the complexity of, I won't say go off all the way to T5, but, but the later like Traveler and try and then take the fake core engine and stretch it on top of that, that framework. Uh, that's what she did, right. but she also. But the idea is, you can be, you could be ships, you could be a living ship, you could be a program, you could be a lot right. of different. So, in in the Banks novels, there's often a lot of interaction between the ships and just people. So you do wind up with kind of a superhero disparity problem. You know, how do you make Lois Lane as interesting to play as Superman? How do you make them interact equally in narrative power? within the scene or do you just always play the superhero or do you just always play the the, the common person so there those are i don't think that those are insurmountable problems i think those are the interesting part of maybe doing uh a property like that uh, but as soon as i dig into it i don't have the energy <laughs> i just i'm uh, i'm just not there for it anymore i don't think i'd rather just read the book again <laughs> yeah and i think again it, it's it's definitely hard because you know the atmosphere that a book can create is it, it it's easier to i mean the author can create generate that but in a for that same atmosphere you've got to get everybody to buy into that it's hard to manufacture that through your well it's something like a bank novel everybody's got to know it pretty well too like you know there are certain expectations about how these minds would behave, what their interests and objectives are. And you could write all that down somehow or integrate it into the, the rules of the game. But it would really help if everybody just sort of all read and loved the novels. Well, it'd be like somebody like never seeing Star Wars and playing in a Star Wars game. It's just like, or whatever it would be. 
there's a, there's certain tropes, there's certain things, there's things you don't do. You know, it's just uh, I could see where. Yeah. I think I think it's a bit simpler though in Star Wars. You can more people. Say, well, more people know it. Everybody knows it. It's ubiquitous. So everybody I mean, knows. Even if you didn't know it, even if you didn't know it, it's it's kind of you know if they play D and D, it's like D and D but with laser guns. And there's definitely good, good guys and bad guys, and you're a good guy. I see what you're saying. Yeah. So there's a lot more nuance in Paul. Well, it's kind of like even with the uh, yeah. There's a lot more nuance going on, especially with the characters. Um, and you say, especially when you're dealing with artificial intelligence and, and yeah, ships, yeah. It, it kind of is. And some of the things that are fun about the media are not fun things to do at the table necessarily. No, right? Because they're two different things. It, it it's yeah, exactly. And in, in the in it's hard to create that, like say that atmosphere. It's kind of like even like it, trying to create a horror or you know dread. It's it, at the table. It's often very difficult. Yeah, yeah. It might be better just as uh, as uh, not so much a role playing game as as your other as your other uh, uh, interviewee would say, but just an event or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, a, man- <laughs> a managed scene of some kind. You know, something with less scope than a, than the role playing game campaign. Yeah, because I think it is just definitely hard to portray. I mean, I think if there are ways of doing it, and I think I think like turning down lights. I think I've done that before. You know, there's there's ways you have to make sure people are limiting their humor because you're just one you're just one um, Monty Python joke away from just ex- <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's tangential, but you could probably get away with that in a in a Ian Banks science fiction. Wouldn't wouldn't be too weird for your ship's name to be a Monty Python reference? <laughs> no, that's cool. I remember. Uh, so I was playing in a uh, in a convention game. So this guy was running a um, he was running a time traveling game, but using um, it was a villains of vigilantes. But it was he took the Dralocytes from Star Frontiers, mm-hmm. and this Dralocyte was almost like a druggie. But he received like cosmic consciousness, and he made some mistakes, and so he was kind of having the characters go and fix it. But he was running; he had like three different games, and each game one, game two, game three, they were all in different. Um, they're on different uh, times, you know. It's like right. sequentially. But then he did it a couple different times, but I ended up playing in like the, like the first game and then like the, I don't know, like the third game. And so it's like the same character he'd be watching would be acting completely different. In fact, I changed <laughs> my character to being African-American rather than the standard uh, character he's supposed to be. And it, it just, the idea that everything could change that drastically between games actually, I think kind of added the, the, that's actually pretty fun. I like that. <laughs> but what I thought was kind of interesting is my, the character went back to the the thirties and, uh, and the idea was uh, this, this alien Dralocyte. He, he, he basically took Al Capone and sent him to Russia become, you know, radicalized by Stalin and then gave him superpowers. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, why you got me thinking about games I could write. <laughs> so then, like, that's actually a pretty marvelous idea. That you've got this time traveling game where everybody can time travel. You wind up doing these episodic <laughs> sessions in time travel, but every time you sit down to the table, you have to roll 
some fundamental difference for everybody's character. Yeah. Like, species or whatever. Because <laughs> everybody else is time traveling too. And so somebody has done something in the past that has changed everything about your characters in the future. You know, <laughs> now you're a woman. You know, you're a giant, you're a humanoid uplifted gecko. And, <laughs> and you have to make sense of this before you go on your mission to, you know, run rum for Al Capone. Yeah, it's, it's the it's the butterfly effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah you only experience the tail end of it, not the butterfly. Yeah, yeah and the idea is your consciousness still is tied; it's tethered. It's not your consciousness is tethered. It's just your yeah. form changes. Yeah, you still sort of vaguely remember not being a gecko, but <laughs> <laughs> but you just gotta run with it because this happens all the time. And what was funny is because the way we played it, the other people played in a different order, so they knew what happened in the past. Right. But I knew what happened in the future, or so it was just weird. It's like, it's like the characters played with characters, and the same players were in a different game that I wasn't in. And yeah. It's like the characters combined in such a way. Like I'm from your future, but you're from my past. So I you know what's you know. It just it was just kind of a surreal, fun moment that only can happen at a con game. I think, yeah, but. Uh. <laughs> That they, those well, I, want to write that I just wanted to jolt you between sessions like that. That's not like <laughs> that guy. He had me laughing so hard. I, especially the first game I was in with him with the Al Capone, uh, my eyes hurt. My, I was crying so much. My, my eyes hurt from crying. <laughs> <laughs> well, those are the best games, honestly. You know, I've played lots of serious games and complicated games and carefully directed campaigns. But the ones where I just flat out laughed most, those have been absolutely the best. I mean, that I will still tell that story of Tim's anti-palate and washing dishes. Because that was one of the best games I ever played in that sport team. It is funny, those things that we... It is funny because, I mean, the idea is that you know, we go into this not knowing what what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, and it's just and and you're right. And then there's times where everything comes together in a way that's just like magical. Yeah, and when you've got the the bug to design things, you're constantly on the hunt for ways to generate that magic. Yes, and that that is profoundly frustrating. I'm not sure there's a way to do that. Like a, you can increase your statistical odds, but you can't always get it. Sometimes it just shows up out of nowhere. Well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, obviously it's the chemistry of the, of the players, chemistry of the GM. And I think it's just the, I think it's also people's willingness to, I think it's also will, people's willingness to take risks and do yeah. things yeah, and not be sure. punished for, for, for those. So, I mean, you could have, punished him by doing other things but you're like you know what <laughs> and he was good with it apparently i, I assume he was i don't know <laughs> well honestly as a game it didn't last but that scene was worth everything yeah and I, I think that's the ways with a lot of things it's just like even for me it's like you know i can remember games i've ran just memorable scenes that the, the, the you know we had one scene where you know it, it's running late it we got i need to wrap this up he's fighting a giant ape on top of a cliff roll the dice, <laughs> succeed, you throw the ape over the cliff, you fail, it throws you over the cliff. 
everybody's everybody's watching everybody's looking at the diets they roll you know it's counting all the stuff up and it's like all of a sudden it's like the chances were low but he succeeded and everybody's like cheering and everybody's excited you know <laughs> it's like that only existed with that group of players willing to take that risk and yeah. and it and it at that time too. in that space yeah, yeah but, but he would have got thrown over the cliff maybe they would have laughed too and it would have been memorable but yeah. but, but but that's not every game though yeah yeah, yeah. So I yeah, guess, but as a designer, you want it to be every game, right? That's yeah, That's yeah. Really well, as a GM, and you that, want that to be every game. You yeah, know, yeah. Player, but I mean, hopefully, the designer is helping you out as a GM. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ideally, the designer is providing the tools that make that happen. And again, Fiasco is the gem there. Fiasco is the one that pulls it off almost all the time. Yes, yes, and that's and and it's because that's just what it does. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. anyway. Well, Brad, I think we're hitting the, the time-space continuum. Yeah, I'm off for bed soon. <laughs> yeah, it is. You're in I'm the future. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 likewise, I, uh, my, my staying up, when I wake up at 5.30 in the morning on my days off, it pretty much signals the end of me uh, staying up late. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, thanks for, for joining me. I've been actually, uh, I've been actually been, Kind of excited to have you on for quite a long time. I'm glad it's, we finally got it to work out. Oh, thank you. That's very flattering, Jeffrey. It was really a joy to be here. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll have to have you on again. And um, until next time, you just take care. Well, I'll, I'll try and have something to talk about that's new rather than 12 years old, 13 years old. <laughs> it's all good because it's all fun and it's all rambling. So, yeah, and it's, it's all still getting played too, which is pretty wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And I'm definitely going to have to dust off the, uh, I need to go find a hard copy now. I I, I think that's my mission. Uh, my new my vision quest is to get a hard copy of Diaspora. Yeah, so uh, I know it's out there in the wild somewhere. Well, it's always available on Lulu. Oh, that's right, Lulu. That's yep. the place I need to go. Okay, so I will put I'll put Lulu. Grab a copy of, You can grab a copy of Elysium Flare there too. Correct. Yes, Elysium Flare. In fact, all the books I assume you have up there. Um, not everything made it into print on demand, but a lot did. Okay. I think Drive Through RPG has a lot of it too. It's just itches where the bargains are, lose where the hard copy is. Okay, excellent. Yeah. All right, well, thanks again, Brad. My pleasure, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me.